Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. guest on today's first meeting is Martin Whitaker, the founding CEO of Just Capital, a nonprofit created by a group of concerned, influential leaders, including Deepak Chopra and Paul Tudor Jones. Just Capital is an independent research organization that ranks companies on the issues Americans care about most, with a mission to build a more just marketplace that better reflects the true priorities of the American people. Last year, it launched the Just ETF in partnership with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. 
Our conversation covers Martin's history of following the money that ultimately led to his position at Just, defining a Just company, engaging the public in the polling process, engaging companies in the results, applications of the research, including the Just ETF, common characteristics of companies that rank highly, the impact of the polls on companies, application to private companies, and new initiatives. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators. I have a favor to ask. If you enjoy listening to the show, I'd really appreciate knowing who you are. So if you haven't done so already, hop on our website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com. On the homepage, you can sign up for a premium subscription where you get access to the library of transcripts or a premium corporate subscription that helps support the show. And on the contact page, you can elect to receive a monthly email with just a few great things I read and listened to over the month, a weekly email from our blog, or no emails at all. Thanks for your support. Please enjoy my first meeting with Martin Whitaker of Just Capital. Martin, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Ted. Why don't you just start with your background? We'll go from there. Sure. So, well, it's a long and complicated one, maybe. So I started out life as a chemistry, as my major. I grew up in England, the north of England, went to St. Andrews in Scotland, studied chemistry, moved to Montreal because of love, not for anything else. Then my girlfriend, now my wife, and I did a master's there. I found myself in the oil industry working for Elf Aquitaine in London in the environmental group. And the guy I was working for, Tony Helis, his name was, big six-foot-five oil guy, would say, if you care about the environment, follow the money. And it kind of stuck with me. And I, I was fortunate enough to get the chance to do a PhD in environmental risk assessment in the early 90s at Edinburgh University in Scotland. And that was a really interesting time because George Bush signed, was at the Rio Earth Summit, and the whole issue of sort of sustainable development was sort of accelerating. And there was this part of it that was focused on finance and how the banking and the insurance and the financial industry should care about sustainable development. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, everything's kind of a combination of luck and judgment. So I'm like, that's really interesting. I have an environmental background, but I think following the money is the right way to go. So I did an MBA. I became an analyst. I was hired by Swiss Re, who was very focused on sustainable development in the capital markets group to build investment products and to help price risk and to trade risk. And I guess my real sort of focus in investment management became when I went to work for a guy called Jesse Fink, who's a co-founder of Priceline. His family office is basically adamant that he wanted to invest his money for intergenerational wealth transfer, all the classic sort of objectives of a family office, but he also cared about environmental social issues, and he did not want to trade his values and the way he invested his portfolio. So that's what we did. We built a company called Mission Point. I was part of that, and then I began advising families, offices, and investors on how to do that, why there is no trade-off, which is my belief. 
but also knowing that at the root of it was the data and the processes and the discipline around how you get markets to focus on major social, economic, health, environmental challenges. And so when the opportunity to become CEO of Just Capital came along in early 2014, I jumped at it because it was everything I felt I'd done in my career in one role. And how did that formation of Just Capital come to you? Well, it came to me through a referral on the board of something called the Carbon Disclosure Project, and the chair of that board knew about a search that was underway to find the CEO of Just Capital and put my name forward. But Just Capital itself was really, it's interesting, there are several co-founders, but the two that came together to spark it were Deepak Chopra, who was teaching a course at Columbia on capitalism and just capitalism and what does a just company even mean and somebody said one of the students well what if we track companies like actual companies on how just they are and that idea sort of sparked with Deepak and he took it through Paul Shiala and a few others to get to Paul Tudor Jones and Paul loved the idea and really seized on it first as an investment proposition, would these companies outperform? But then more broadly and more expansively as an entire movement, that if you could shift the trajectory of the capital markets onto a slightly more just course, you could really channel vast amounts of not just money, but innovation and resources to solving major problems that we face today. So as a concept, you get hired in to be the CEO of this new thing called Just Capital. Where do you start? So I should make it clear, Just Capital is a not-for-profit, which is even odder insofar as we're not a classic 501c3, but that is indeed our structure. And we formed that way because we're really about the mission. And the mission drives everything we do. And I was lucky enough to have some great founding board members who were there at the beginning. So obviously I've mentioned Paul, who's our chair today, Deepak, Ariana Huffington, Ray Chambers, Ronaldo Brudicol, Gene Olwang. I mean, some phenomenal people there who had a vision for what this thing could become. My job was really to bring it to life. So it was everything from filing the documents to become a 501c3 to setting up the office, to hiring people, to really trying to bring the strategy to life. And it's like any company. It's actually, even though it's a nonprofit, I've never worked as hard in my life as I have at this point in time. I think the advantages of the structure that we have and the approach that we have is we're really about trying to solve problems and we're trying to get markets to be better and to do more and to sort of breathe life back into this, this ideal of the American dream. And more and more people are warming to that fact, more and more want to support us and not just believe that it's a great investment thesis. So this is like going to help me be smarter as how I see the, the markets in the world, but it connects something deeper inside about you know, the purpose of business and the purpose of money even. Which is a wonderful mission to use capital markets in such a way that improves our vision of what should be. Let's start with how do you define, as you started it, what Deepak was saying, how do you define what a just company is? So- that is a great question. It's also a defining one for us because the essence of what we do is that we don't define it. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, but what I'm saying is we actually turn to the American people 
And that was, I think, Paul's insight was it doesn't matter what, what I think or what you think, Martin, or what Deepak thinks. This is about connecting to Main Street. So we began in early 2015 surveying Main Street America on what a just company looks like. It sounds kind of simple, but that's how we started. We wanted the public to define the elements in a very sort of detailed way, very practical way of what does a just company look like? What does it do? What are the specific criteria that make up a just company? And of course, in the first time we did this, we didn't know what we would get back. So it was a real leap of faith. I think we believe that if we're going to build a market, it has to serve as many people as possible. It has to serve the public. And so it makes sense that they should be the ones to say, this is what a just company looks like. And five years in now, we've actually got back results that make a ton of sense. It's very kitchen table values. We have a model now that has come from the survey and the polling work, and we We've done what I think is probably some of the the most sophisticated survey work on how ordinary people think about markets, how they think about companies, what matters to them. What did you find when you started doing the polling? So I'll give you the headline right up front. Seven major themes have been prominent throughout, and we weight them according to their relative importance. Or I should say the public weights them through quantitative polling on their relative importance. The most important one is how a company treats its workers. So that's fair pay, benefits, safety at work, working conditions, training. Those sets of issues have always been the most set of it, the important set of issues. So am I being paid fairly relative to the person next to me doing the same job? Am I paid a living wage? Millions of Americans in frontline industries are not paid a living wage and rely on food stamps to get by. So you tell me, is that just? So what you get back is a very practical set. So benefits, people just looking for good benefits. People are looking for a good treatment, you know, a dignity at work, to be treated with respect and dignity in the workplace, and to get back a fair share of what is being produced. Going down in order of importance after workers were how a company treats its customers. And now we've seen, especially in the last couple of years, a rise in importance on data privacy, but it also includes things like labeling and advertising. The nature of a company's products is the third driver, and that really includes our products high quality. It does include value and cost, but it also includes are they beneficial to society, to human health, the environment. Then we have a company's environmental impact, its footprint. Environmental issues, very important. A company's impact on the communities where it operates, not just its own operations, but throughout its supply chain, including human rights issues. Its impact on the job market. Are companies creating good jobs? Are they destroying jobs? Are they stable jobs? So macro job impacts. And then lastly, does it make money? And how does it treat its shareholders and does it have strong leadership with integrity so what's interesting to us as we look at it now step back is like it's almost like the mirror image or the opposite of how markets traditionally prioritize those things in a way like in our model workers most important shareholders least 
in the markets, of course, that's reversed. And in our polling, we ask a ton of questions about how people think about business and markets. Are they working for you? you know, do you have faith in them? If you had a message for a CEO, what would it be? And by and large, you get people very sort of impassioned about just wanting a stake, wanting to be treated fairly, whether it's as a worker or as a customer or as a community member. And the feeling is that the pendulum has just swung a little too far in favor of just short-term profit maximization for the benefit of shareholders. And to create more value for the other stakeholders of a company, as I've mentioned, brings more balance back and creates a more prosperous long-term future for everybody. So that's, that's sort of the idea. And our, our mission, tying it back to just, is to try and be the countervailing force. We want the pendulum to swing a little further back. Why? Because that's what the American people want. We want to try and incentivize companies to think about it like that. We want to try and incentivize investors to think about it like that. Why? Because it's in their enlightened self-interest to do so. These companies do better in the market. So that's the big picture. Great. So if we take a step back on the polling process, a lot of people try to conduct surveys for research to learn information. And as you mentioned, you have a board that had lots of resources for Just. And I'm imagining that you could get at doing this survey however you needed to. What was most important in the survey you prepared to get the results of the polls that were going to be most accurate in your eyes? So we wanted absolute technical rigor. We wanted this thing to be academic quality, peer review quality, stand up to scrutiny by you know the American Association of Public Opinion Research. Right? We wanted this to be pristine. So we ran a process and we ended up partnering with the National Opinion Research Center, the University of Chicago. They've been our partners for the last four years. They're awesome. They do incredibly high quality work. They have the Amerispeak panel, which is fully representative of American society. So that's the second piece. We wanted to make sure the polling wasn't biased in any way. And we went to great lengths to make sure we weren't leaving out people who weren't online. You know, we do telephone direct interviews. We wanted to make sure we were reaching people in all parts of the country from all economic brackets. So... That was the second objective, is to make sure that we couldn't be accused of bias in any way in the results. And then the third objective was really to try and capture with as much accuracy as possible how people really felt about these things. So we feel as though we're kind of journalists in a way. We want to be as true to form as we can to make sure that we're capturing people's real views today. 2019 on what does a just company look like? And what are the techniques for doing that? Well, we start out with focus groups. So we bring seven, eight, nine people together, blank sheet of paper. What does a just company look like to you? So I'll just, people talk about that. Then the moderators, obviously trained at these things, start to introduce ideas now from previous years. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Without kind of putting our finger on the scale. That from the focus groups, and we've done dozens of these now all around the country. And from that, you get a sense of the issues. We then can group them together in different groups, which we then put to the test through qualitative polling. We'll conduct qualitative polling where we're testing the use of different words and language. Do people understand what we're talking about? Are people confused? Are they conflating two things which are separate in our model? So the qualitative helps us actually name the specific components of the model. 
So pays a fair wage, provides good benefits, invests in local communities, provides good jobs, and so on and so forth. Those things come direct from the public. And then we do a final phase, which is a quantitative polling where people are forced to make a choice between two types of companies. If you rotate the things that vary between those companies, at the end of that, and you do that thousands and thousands of times, you get the weighting. And so if you were to take one of our polls, you'd be confronted with two companies. We don't name companies, so we're never polling on actual companies. These are all company A, company B, because we don't want to get any brand confusion with naming actual companies. Company A, company B, and we'll have four attributes, and they'll vary. And so this approach is well used in consumer choice and decision modeling. And, you know, we've built our team. We try to stack it with data scientists and decision modelers so that we're really as accurately as we can presenting this very, very strong public polling opinion on what a just company is. So I want to start working towards what you do with this. And the first kind of observation I had is this, as you walk through those seven criteria in the investment world, when people think about impact investing and these types of things, you hear the acronym ESG, right? environmental, social, and governance. And the E wasn't that high on your list, and the G was at the very bottom. As you've looked at the results of your poll and thought about what's actually happening in the impact investing universe, what do you see happening that you'd like to inform people either shouldn't be or should be weighted differently? Yeah, so l let me connect those dots a little bit. So from our model, from the polling, we get the components that are weighted, and they roll up to these seven drivers. Our team then analyzes the Russell 1000 companies. So we take those companies, we gather data, the best quality data that we can get our hands on, on all of those things. How do you gather that data? Well, it depends on the issue. You know, you partner with academic institutions on our living wage work, for example. We partner with MIT. Our human rights work, we're working with lots of groups focused on business and human rights in the supply chain. So we partner with experts. We're always on the hunt for data. And over five years now we've been doing this, you know, we've gathered a huge amount of data and we're constantly looking to work through that in terms of its quality and its accuracy. And we're also very transparent. The other thing you got to know about us is the methodology, the data sources, all of that we make public. We then go to the companies and we've built an online portal, essentially a data exchange where we show the companies everything. And we reach out to the companies and we say, hey, we're going to be tracking you on these things. Here's Just Capital. Let me introduce you. This is what we do. And here's the data we have on you. And we give the companies a chance to comment and to give us data and to question data. And so the companies start to get bought in. And you know, over the last 18 months, we've had a tripling of the number of companies that are in engagement with us now, 360, 370 of the almost 900 companies we rank. So, so I think the companies are sort of like this idea that we're actually we're out there to try to reflect their performance accurately so then we take that and we rank the companies head to head one to a thousand we rank them by industry we've built the model in a way and our website in a way that you could rank any company on any issue and compare them head to head so it's completely user-friendly and flexible and can be customized. We then launched, a couple of years ago, we took the top 50% of companies in every sector and we created an index. 
And we launched the index with FTSE Russell and then Goldman Sachs Asset Management licensed that index late 2017. And in June 2018, we launched the Just ETF, which is an exchange-traded fund on the New York Stock Exchange. JUST is a ticker. So that's one way that we have created a product that an investor could say, yeah, I like that approach, actually. The wisdom of the crowd, I believe that there's something there. And we do a lot of work to try and understand the just alpha. So what is the investment case? What is the business case for being a just company? And so we publish all of that. But you know, we believe that there's a very strong signal here that's actually very interesting, undiscovered, drives alpha, helps investors think about risk in a new way, keeps people up to speed with what's going on today, socially, politically, and thinks about that as an investment lens. So the model can be used in lots of different ways. So if you're an ESG investor or an impact investor, and you're thinking about where do I get data on companies? How do I know which companies are really doing on these issues that I'm interested in or I'm tracking or that I think are financially relevant? We want you to come to Just Capital. You can use our data as a feed. You can invest in our ETF. Hopefully one day we'll have a family of products. But that's the idea is to try and make it easy for investors who want exposure to these trends or who just believe this is just a great investment approach to put a dollar down and support us that way. As you did from the beginning to the creation of the ETF, you're doing this polling to see what matters. You're then doing all this research to see how companies stack up. But all along the way in that process, you started with the hypothesis that this was better for performance. We're going to follow the money. At what point in time did you say, well, maybe we should see if these companies actually do better in corporate performance? Well, we started out not to build an investment product. Just to be clear, we started out with a mission to build a more just marketplace. It's like turning a light on in a dark room. If we provide the market with information on what companies are doing on things that matter to their workers, their customers, the people who live and work in their communities, <laughs> those are just better companies. And this is a really interesting, neat, unique way to get a handle on that. And so investors, active, passive, the world over, are looking for an edge. And we think this is sort of like the proverbial dollar bill on Wall Street, on Wall Street, on the sidewalk. It can't be real because somebody would have picked it up if it was. Going to the public to saying, hey, what do you think? It's actually kind of a neat way to think about it. Look, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, the performance of the index has been good. The performance of just companies, we slice and dice this lots of ways, tends to be very strong. You know, we see the top quintile, bottom quintile in our model, according to Justin. It's not financial performance, just, just ranking. as a material spread. So we think there's a strong investment thesis, but that's not why we're doing this. It's not why we started this. How have the various investors that are engaging in some type of impact investing fund communicated with you? Well, the investors, practically speaking, connect with Goldman Sachs because it's their ETF. But obviously, inevitably, they want to know what's under the hood. So typically, we sit down with them and just walk them through the methodology. Exactly the same questions you've been asking me. Where do you get the polling? How do you do that? Does that really make sense? How do you get the data? How do you think about Exxon or Chevron, Chevron's an oil company. How can an oil company be in your index? Well, because when you poll the public, 
Sure, it, it produces greenhouse gas emissions, contributes to environmental impacts, but on balance across all those issues, this is where it stacks up. So it's really a very detailed set of due diligence, which quite honestly is as rigorous as any due diligence that I as an investor in my previous life have been through. And I would say appropriately so. So other than the Goldman license ETF, how have other managers taken the research you've done and applied it into their own investment processes? So that's obviously something we encourage. We have a lot of folks, since the press and the attention we've received since the ETF launch and our overall marketing efforts, as our profile builds, we have a lot of investors who say, hmm, that's an interesting signal. I'd like to use it. How they use it, we want to make sure that it's being applied in a way that's consistent with our mission. But we also want to encourage adoption of our rankings. And we know that investors will use it in different ways, depending on their strategies. So a good example is, you know, a startup manager, a new manager called Greyark that is interested in it's an active management strategy. They want our signal. They feel like our signal can be accretive to their own investment decision-making process, their own thinking. And we think that's great. So we want them to use it. We want them and other active or passive managers to start using our signal. And as I said, provided it's consistent with our mission, channeling capital to more just companies and therefore encouraging more just corporate behavior, then we're right behind that. We want more of it. From the outside, how do you know what any individual manager is doing with the data once they have it? We just have to be selective. We have to make sure we're working with people who we believe are doing this for the right reasons and are supportive of the mission. How many different managers are you working with today or working with your day-to-day that you know of? It's early right now. I would say you know, a handful, maybe a half dozen or so. We're in discussions with probably twice that number. And it varies, as I said, from we want to develop a brand new product and we want to embed the just signal in that to, hey, we're already running this whole strategy or we're simply data hungry and we think you've got the best data on some of the most important new drivers of corporate performance. So we want to license your data. Do you anticipate having other pure just products over time? Or is it all kind of like the polling and the rankings are going to encapsulate into this one ETF? No, we want to have a family of just products. We want to have fixed income. We want to have, I could see us having different active strategies, sectoral strategies, because we obviously the rankings can be quite easily sliced and diced in lots of different ways. So you should see this as a signal that would apply to anywhere where you're looking at a company-issued security. And how do you get from here to there? (laughs) Resources for the organization. We have some great partners. Obviously, we partner with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. They've been a wonderful partner on the launch of the ETF. We want to do more with them. You know, we want to get the word out. And thanks to you, Ted, with this podcast, hopefully that will contribute. We appreciate that. But we're trying to get as many eyeballs on what we're doing on the mission as possible. And it's like any business. You just grind it out day after day, and then your moment in the sunlit uplands comes later. I see how active, as an investor, New York State Common is on climate change. I see how active family offices are on trying to align the values of perhaps next-gen family members with the way the portfolios run. Large asset managers who just believe this is a very, very strong opportunity in the market right now because a lot of money is seeking a way in, a credible way in, to impact 
So I think that that's the state of the ESG market, and we want to help investors by providing them with data and providing them with products. But I'd also say, quite honestly, this transcends ESG and impact. We're talking now about, it's a legitimate debate in this country right now about the future of capitalism, reimagining capitalism. It's almost 50 years from the date of Milton Friedman's seminal New York Times piece. That has defined a generation of thinking. Is that thinking fit for the next generation? That's a question, a legit question. What are markets best serving when you look at wealth inequality, income inequality in this country, social challenges that we face? We have to get markets involved in the solution. Philanthropy and government is just not going to do it. So I think it goes beyond ESG and the impact bucket of a portfolio. This is really about core investing and core processing of how capitalism needs to evolve over the next 50 years. You have this mission and you've done the polling and you have the ETF, but inevitably half the companies you're ranking fall at the bottom half of the ranks. How have those companies engaged with you? Well, it's been really interesting. You know, even companies that are lower down in the ranking, we never call them bad. So we're all about trying to incentivize and encourage and influence companies to be better. So we want to showcase the best companies. We award them a seal. We want the seal to be displayed so that they can market their justness. So we're always trying to encourage companies to do better, be better, and the rewards for doing that will come to you. So the companies who are lower ranked, Typically, they're on a journey anyway. They're trying to figure it out. How can we be better on some of these things? Sometimes our data can help them be better. Sometimes they want to emulate best practice. Occasionally, it's the first time they've been benchmarked on some of these things. So we've had, again, I gave you sort of the impressive corporate engagement numbers that we're posting now. That's across the board. That's not just among leading companies. That's across the board. And I think We want to try and meet companies where they are. We're not naming and shaming. Once we earn their trust, this is why the transparency matters. We want to build trust with the companies that we're really just trying to tell their story accurately and honestly. And increasingly, they're buying that, whether they're ranked high or low. And a lot of the investing impact, when people think about it, really does, you have the governance piece, but a lot of it focuses on the environmental part. I understand the sort of people in the country want certain things, but sometimes the people in the country don't fully understand the economic impact of, say, other more important factors. Have you thought about that mix in the sort of economic impact of what just companies do versus sort of what the people say a just company is? We just try to steer as close as we can to our North Star, which is just making sure that we're accurately capturing how people think about and define a just company without thinking about it through any kind of economic lens or presupposing whether they're right, people are right or wrong. We have dissected the returns. You know, we looked at our own portfolio, our own index. The index has outperformed its benchmark since inception by a couple hundred basis points. But we've been able to dissect that alpha signal. And actually, you see a lot of that coming from the S, the social elements, which stands to reason. Every CEO I know says our greatest asset walks out of the door every night, right? So how you treat your people. Yet, we often think about employees as a cost, not as an investment. So 
So I think the S of the ESG and the human element, let's call it, that we're picking up is probably one of the most undiscovered sources of alpha. And when we do our factor analysis, one of the greatest contributors to the outperformance that we see. If you set aside balancing and comparing companies across industries, are there certain industries that naturally lead themselves to being more just than others? So if you looked at our absolute ranking, you tend to get software companies, tech companies rising towards the top. Although I will say the Just 100, which is the top 100 companies, has every sector represented and is actually very diverse in terms of its sector representation. The tech companies, they typically have created a ton of jobs. They've done well financially. They are able to pay people well, which is obviously highly rated in the model, highly weighted. So so they do do well in a lot of those things, but it's not across the board. You know, we're starting to see a pushback, data privacy. How healthy is social media? How do people think about the job destruction factor as well as job creation? Is technology serving society? Are we creating an economy that is giving more people the chance to pull themselves up and build a more prosperous future? You know, is tech doing that? I think we may start to see a bit of a rebalance. We're in the middle of our 2019 polling right now. It'll be interesting to see how some of the travails that tech has been through in the last six months play out. Yeah. And similarly, have you looked at models that may have sort of a spurious correlation with what you're doing? So the one that comes to mind as you're talking about this is, well, high profit margin businesses have the ability to pay their workers more and treat people better. So are there any consistent sort of correlations with other factors that don't lay into the polling that would indicate that it's easier for a company to be just if certain factors are in place? Now you're getting to the heart of causation and correlation. And we're, we're very obviously aware of that. And we're really trying to drill down into what, what's the persona of a just company? What are the connecting factors here that you could say, yeah, you know what? That company has these attributes and it's going to be more just and it's going to do better financially. Anyway, so when you break that down, some of the things you start to look at are leadership the integrity of a company's leaders, how is that being transmitted throughout an organization? We talk about culture, management quality. Those are the kind of hallmarks of a well-run company, a company that does look after all of its stakeholders well. And so I, I think that's what we start to see come through. But again, we want to be very intellectually honest about this. So We want the chips to fall where they may in terms of, okay, the polling, the process. We are very cognizant of the need to be asking the right questions. So I want to make sure that, you know, our polling team, they are very, very focused and very professional, very expert at making sure that we're not leading the witness in any kind of way. So let me push on that a little bit because... It makes perfect sense, right, in the sense that we have this idea, we want to know what the American people think. But there's this also broader mission of making companies more just. Have you run into situations where somebody has a hypothesis of this is what makes a just company function well? It's a certain type of leader. Oh, but that type of leader might not be great for jobs. And so there's a thesis that the polling is what matters. But as you said, in causation, Maybe that's not really what matters in sort of improving the long-term sustainability of companies and having them be more just. 
So you are pushing on one of the core tensions of what we do, which is, sure, we want to be very unbiased in our polling and bring this new sort of model of the public to bear, rank companies, tell their story honestly, let the data do the talking. And we want to try and encourage a race to the top. So that's why we build the investment products. That's why we want capital influenced by our data and our rankings, because that will incentivize companies. We want to get our rankings and our data out in the hands of consumers. We know that new workers entering the marketplace, they want to work for just company. They are less willing to trade their values at the door every morning. They want a sense of purpose in their lives. So you want to win the war for talent? You've got to be a just company. We certainly want to go to the companies and are going to the companies to say, hey, look, this is good for business. There's a strong story here for competitiveness and performance improvement. And so help us help you do that. You know, we don't take money from companies for that. We don't take money from companies for the ranking because we want to preserve our independence. But we absolutely want companies to be looking at this and saying, okay, this is in our self-interest to be better. And honestly, Ted, we haven't talked to any company that says, well, we don't really care what the public thinks. We don't really care about how we treat our workers. It's obvious now you say it, but we're sort of getting into the heart of what drives success for companies. And I think many of the companies that we rank and many companies that we don't rank who are knocking on our door and who are working with organizations like ours to be better, to be just more thoughtful about how they manage different stakeholders, they're doing it because they believe it's in their best interest and that that isn't also aligned with the best interests of other stakeholders. And it's a win-win, not the zero-sum game of, I'm an investor, I win, you're a worker, you lose. Every dollar coming back to me is a dollar out of your pocket. That's the social norm that we've got to try and break. Yeah. What are some of the other core tensions you run into? Well, to what extent do we lean into advocacy? You know, a lot of people are very focused on individual issues that we track. I'm thinking of like things like paid family leave, a lot of activism around that. A lot of people involved in policy who know far more about that issue than we do, but who will use our data and see a need to try and get companies because they see the scale effect. If we can get the top 10 retailers to invest in workers more and improve training and lift wages, as we're starting to see, actually, that affects millions of people and tens of millions of families. So they see the scale effect. So the tension there is, there, to what extent are we leaning into the advocacy and in order to sort of support that process of change? And to what extent do we say, no, no, we're maintaining complete independence and we'll let the market do what it will? I have you come out. We're feeling our way, you know. We don't want anything to compromise our independence and our the unbiased quality of either the rankings or the polling. So if what we're doing creates a problem in terms of our ability to deliver the market with a high-quality independent signal on justness, that's a problem. We won't do it. So that's really the North Star. Have you thought about applying the same polling and frameworks to the private markets? Absolutely. I mean, when we talk to the public, these same sentiments and the same model can just as much apply to a private company as it can to a public company. So we're most focused on the public markets because we can get data on those companies and we can rank the companies. But the model itself, absolutely, we want to drive that. I mean, look, we're a nonprofit, 
So we're open for business. You know, we want private equity investors, private companies, business owners to come to us and say, hey, look, I really like that framing. How can we adopt that? How can I, as a CEO of a private company or as a GP in a private equity firm, benchmark my companies against the largest publicly traded corporations in the country? I want to know that my company is a just company. I want to know that my companies I'm investing in are doing good things as well. So absolutely, this is an economy-wide thing. This is not just meant for public market investors. And so what are the next initiatives you're working on? Well, we want to broaden. Obviously, we want to expand. We want to broaden the number of companies that we track. We want to broaden in terms of where we go for our polling. We love to to do survey work internationally. We're always on the hunt for new and better data. That is, I would say, the intellectual and technological frontier of impact investing. It's all well and good for it to have a policy on gender pay equity, but how are you actually doing? You wouldn't invest in a company that had a policy to be profitable. You'd want to know what they're actually doing. So I don't see this as being any different. So getting the data and then getting data that you can rely on, that I think is where, as a CEO of Just, and I think about our mission, if we can get the best data, good things happen. And then the last place where we're going is, you know, we want to raise our profile. I want to be walking through Times Square and see a company proudly displaying the seal as a just company and your consumer making decisions around justness. Because I think that's ultimately what's going to be driving the kind of overall change that you have to have for the mission to be fulfilled. And how have you measured what has changed in the five years since you took the helm? Well, we're tracking companies all the time on their performance. That's what we do for a living. So the metrics that we've developed every year We release the new rankings, but on an ongoing basis, we're gathering data on how companies are tracking to all these things. So we had a tech company recently do its first living wage audit. It had never done that before. Did that on account of our our involvement with them. So we started to see progress take lots of different form. And you see companies disclosing data, giving us data. We have tens of thousands of individual company data points now, which are now public, which were not before. We see investment dollars flowing in more just direction. So there's lots of markers of progress and adoption. But hey, you know, we're early on a journey. We're trying to move markets and that doesn't happen in a couple of years. That's going to take more than just capital and it's going to take decades. And what's been your biggest frustration? I think the biggest frustration in terms of running a nonprofit is just predictability of funding. So that's par for the course for anybody listening who is supporting a nonprofit, I would encourage you to give on a multi-year basis. I think the biggest frustration in terms of the mission is one of mindset. People just have a knee-jerk response about, well, this is the way the markets work and this is the way they've always worked and why should that change? Everything's fine. What are you talking about? Wealth inequality. What are you talking about? Everything's fine. Like that, we can start to shift behavior. We can start to influence companies and data and all the good things we're doing, but it needs a change of system and it is only going to come with a shift in mindset. Well, Martin, I want to turn to some closing questions, so let's have at it. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? 
I'm a big soccer player. I love playing. I love watching. I will. <laughs> I, I have four kids. I've forced them all to play. And I'm the kind of guy who will stop and watch a soccer game at any point in time, anywhere, on any TV or live action, whatever I'm doing. <laughs> and my team is Manchester United, <laughs> for the record. Yeah. What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, boy. I work in New York City. I would say this is a small pet peeve. You know, you've struggled your way through crowds. People don't give you an inch on the sidewalks across Grand Central <laughs> every day. People are just heads down, going for it. And I guess my pet peeve is holding the door open for someone and someone walking through it without saying thank you. Common courtesy. You need a little more of that. What have you learned recently that most struck you? I learned to stop and smell the roses a little bit. My father passed away about 18 months ago, and I realized... You know, when you run hard all the time, it's at some point you got to stop. My wife said that to me, actually, in January. I asked her, hey, what should my New Year's resolution be? And she's like, you know what? you got to stop and smell the roses. So that's what I'm doing. Great. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I would say grit and hard work. The idea of just really working hard at what you do to try and be successful. And I would say also confidence. I got a lot of confidence with my... My dad in particular would be very comfortable in any crowd, in any situation, and I've tried to get that from him. Great. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I wish I knew that there are so many paths out there to success. I have four kids, so obviously I'm trying to give them the lessons I wished I had learned when I was young. And I say to them, you know, look, there are many, many paths out there. Whatever you do, just throw everything you've got at it and love it. That's the key to happiness and success. Perfect. Martin, thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you know a manager you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out or ask the manager to reach out to ted at capitalallocators.com. We greatly appreciate your ideas and we'll do our best to help foster transparency and communication across the industry. 